0: is a faith formation curriculum for young children titled Godly Play. We used it many uh, summers ago here at Good Shepherd. Well, one of the key phrases of the curriculum is this, the wilderness is a dangerous place. You only go there if you have to. Imagine as children run their fingers through large wooden sandboxes, godly play teachers invite them to picture the scorched landscape biblical characters such as Moses and the Israelites encountered as they wandered in the wilderness. They might say something like, What was it like out there in the wilderness? There was fierce heat. There were jagged rocks. There were wild animals. The sand burned your feet. There was no water. Well, today's gospel reading is about Jesus spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And I think it's safe to say that Jesus did not experience it as a safe place. I think he experienced it as a dangerous place. Like the Gospel of Luke and Matthew's telling of this story, there are more details about Jesus' experience in the wilderness We learn that Jesus was tempted three times, and we hear how Jesus responds to those temptations, which seem to come at the end of his time of fasting. I read a biblical commentator this week, and this person emphasized that it was after fasting 40 days and 40 nights that Jesus was tempted. And I began to wonder, what did he do all those other part days, you know? Did he pray for hours? I wondered, did he walk some miles each day? Did he stay camped out in the same place while he was in the wilderness? I wondered where he found water to drink, because even though he was not eating, he would certainly still need to be able to have water. I wondered what the silence was like. I wondered, did he gaze at the stars each night? Because in the wilderness, I can kind of envision the sky being very clear at night. I wondered if he chased a lizard just for the fun of it. But as the day stretched on, I wondered, did he fear for his life because of having fasted for so long? But Matthew, like all those other gospel writers, leaves all those questions unanswered. But there are a few details he does include in his account which are telling, and they give us much to cling to as we face the deserts in our own lives. First, Jesus doesn't just meander into the wilderness. He didn't schedule a National Geographic tour just to check it out. According to Matthew, after Jesus is baptized, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. You only go there if you have to, as they say in that godly play curriculum. Oddly enough, this may just be a comforting detail. And why? because I think it rings true. We do not typically choose to enter the wilderness. We don't volunteer generally to go to places that are dangerous or that will cause us pain or maybe cause us loss. But the wilderness happens nonetheless, whether it comes to us as a guise in a hospital waiting room or a thorny relationship or a struggling child, or a sudden death or a cripple, crippling panic attack, the wilderness appears unbidden and unwelcome, but at our doorstep, nonetheless. You can almost say it kind of insists on itself. And sometimes, can we bear to ponder this? It's God's own spirit who drives us into a parched landscape amidst the wild beast. Does this mean that God wills bad things to happen to us? Does he want us to suffer? We wouldn't say that, would we? We don't say that at all. Does it mean that God can redeem even the most barren periods of our lives and that our deserts can become holy even as they remain dangerous and uncertain? Yes, we would say that is true. However, We know that many people have suffered under this false teaching that God authors pain and human suffering for a greater good of his own devising. But I think there's a fine line we have to pay attention to. Sometimes our journeys with God include desolate and dark places. But it's not because God takes pleasure in our pain, but because we live in a fragile, broken world that includes deserts. And because God's modus operandi is to take the things of death and wring from them resurrection, what do we boldly sing? God makes beautiful things out of dust. Well, at our staff meeting on Tuesday, Jen Jarman reminded us, as we were discussing this passage, that numbers in the Bible often represent something rather significant. The number 40 typically means a long, long, long time. Often our wilderness journeys can feel as if th- as if that they last for a long time. I've done a seven-day silent retreat many years ago, and I have to tell you that had its own challenges. <laughs> However, I've never spent 40 days in solitude in silence, much less experiencing physical deprivation and danger. I imagine that Jesus' time in the wilderness did not pass by quickly. And the sense I get from the gospel is that Jesus probably wrestled in body, mind, and spirit each and every day he was there. For those of us who live in this quick-fixed culture, this aspect of the wilderness can be especially trying because we both tire and despair easily when it becomes hard. Why, we ask, is this pain not ending? Why are our prayers going unanswered? Where is God? But maybe we need to ask a harder question. Why did Jesus need the wilderness, and why do we? In the sermon on this particular gospel story, Lutheran pastor Nadia Bowles Weber suggests, and I quote, that temptation, Jesus and ours, is always about identity, about who we are and whose we are. She goes on to say that identity is always God's first move. Before we can do anything wrong or right, God named us and claimed us as God's own. God gives us our identity. But almost immediately, she goes on and says, others try to tell us who we are and to whom we belong. Take, for instance, capitalism, the weight loss industry, parents, kids at school, friends, social media. They all have a goal at telling us who we are, but only God can do that. Everything else is temptation. Immediately before this week's gospel lesson, Jesus is baptized, and according to Matthew, the heavens are open and God announces Jesus' identity loud and clear for all to hear that were there. He says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. But what happened to that certain sense of identity and belonging as Jesus' wilderness wanderings stretched into week two and week three, and week four? What happened to that when he was hungry and tired and tempted? Did that sense of identity begin to waver? Did the son of God have to keep reminding himself who he was? I'm God's beloved, I'm God's beloved, I'm God's beloved? Did the father have to nudge him each time he forgot and say, remember, remember who you are? There's a Christian author named Debbie Thomas, and she writes that I, that she, well, she writes, I grew up in a Christian community that treated Jesus' humanity with a great deal of squeamishness. Though we affirmed the incarnation in our creeds and in our worship, we resisted examining its implications too closely. We did not linger too long over what God's in flesh life might look like, And to consider the possibility that the Son of God might have wrestled with his identity or vocation was not up to discussion. We did not discuss what his relationship with the Father was like. To argue that the greatest danger Jesus faced in the wilderness was not starvation but amnesia about who he was, God's beloved, that was too much. That was heretical. But it's true. At baptism, Jesus heard the absolute truth about who he was, and that was the easy part. The much harder part came for him in the wilderness when he had to face down every vicious assault on that truth, and when he was attempted to abandon God's will. When the memory of the Father's voice from heaven faded, he had to learn how to be God's beloved in a lonely wasteland. It seems significant that he recounted, he recited, he remembered scripture, which communicated to him that truth about who he was and what God's will was for the world. It seems significant that that happened. So perhaps we, like Jesus, while in the wilderness of our lives, have to learn again and again what it really means to be God's beloved and practice the very things that help us to remember this, just that. Because the unnerving fact is, we can be God's beloved and uncomfortable at the same time. We can be God's beloved and struggling with our faith at the same time. And in the wilderness, the love that survives and upholds us is strong. Learning to trust that love, I believe, takes time, and maybe that's all part of what Jesus was doing in the wilderness. Perhaps you are like me. During difficult times in your life, you have experienced God coming to you and reassuring you all is well, reminding you that you and yours are God's beloved, and that experience allows you, even though times are rough, it's tough, it's hard, It helps you to let go and move forward. I wanted to point out the last verse of this particular text and I wondered if you noticed it as we read it today. It says there were angels in the wilderness who cared for Jesus, ministered to Jesus. I have to tell you I've glossed over that for years and just kind of treated that as an aside. And it's really kind of startling and comforting thing to notice. It's also true because when we open our eyes, I think often somewhere somehow help comes, rest comes, solace comes, a word of hope comes. Granted, our angels do not always appear in the forms we are looking for, but they come. As I read this text, I wondered what Jesus' angels look like. Did they appear as winged creatures from heaven, just like we might see in a painting somebody did from the 1500s? Maybe you've seen them in um, uh, old church buildings. Or were those angels the comforting breezes, a trickle of water, a rock on which to lay his head, a place of unexpected shade? And the mentioning of angels leads us to ponder what do the angels in our lives look like? Ponder what they have looked like in the past. When they ministered to you, they held you and embraced you. Did those angels give you a new version of God's voice calling you his beloved? Did you hear it in maybe a new way? I have a friend who's been battling cancer for the last three years. And when she talks about receiving chemo, and how difficult that is in going into the room where she receives chemo, she always talks in her CaringBridge journal about the nurse angels who minister to her. What a lovely, what a lovely thing. And those angels have made all the difference for her in that journey she's been on. If angels have come to our aid, then what would it be like for us to enter into other people's barren places right now, into their deserts, and become an angel for their journey? I think this is part of our call for Lent, our practice for Lent. We are angels for other people. Well, folks, the wilderness is a dangerous place, and you only go there if you have to. This week we begin our Lent journey. It started on Ash Wednesday when we acknowledged that we were dust and to dust we will return. And from that austere beginning we venture into the wilderness like Abraham did, like Moses did, like Elijah did, like Jesus did, with ashes on our foreheads. And we begin a journey. But the journey is about learning again and again our true names our true identities so that identity can shine forth in the world and for other people and for even creation itself i pray that empowered by the spirit we will walk with courage into the deserts we cannot always choose or avoid i pray that our stints in the wilderness will teach and help us to remember who we really are. Because that's what Jesus found out this week, didn't he? In this reading, he found out who he really was, God's beloved. And I pray that when angels whisper, beloved, into our ears, we will listen, we will trust it, and most of all, we will reflect it each and every day. Amen.